This podcast is brought to you by F5 and produced in collaboration with Kerasoft and Government Executive Media Group's Studio 2G. The world of security is constantly evolving. Government agencies need tools and applications that can adapt to these changes. With F5's integrated security suite, you can protect your applications against the threats of today and tomorrow. To learn more about how F5 can help your organization, visit www.f5.com federal. Twenty twenty has tested government IT teams in ways none of us could have imagined. As agencies face the realities of a longer-term remote work environment, they're in need of tools and technologies that can continue to enable productivity and collaboration. As a result, these organizations are turning to applications to meet constituent demands and improve efficiencies across the enterprise. But these applications can come at a cost. If not managed properly, applications increase the potential attack surface and put an agency at risk of fraud and abuse. So what can agencies do to more effectively protect their information? That's what we'll be talking about today on Industry Insights, a podcast for government leaders by industry leaders, where we discuss some of the most pressing challenges the government is grappling with today. I'm your host, Constance Sayers, and joining me to talk about how agencies can improve their security posture is Dan Woods, who has spent 20 years in government law enforcement and intelligence. Today, he's best known as Vice President at Shape Intelligence, an organization committed to helping agencies defeat application fraud. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Uh, So let's just get started by talking a little bit about your background. It's certainly a unique and interesting one. So tell me how you broke into the world of government security. Well, you're right. It is rather unique. I started in law enforcement back in the early 90s, actually working a beat. And at the time, I was studying engineering at Arizona State. And you know, none of my classmates were cops and none of my uh, cop friends were engineering students. So it was uh, rather unique. And that just kind of... Uh, it kind of drove me to have an interest in cybersecurity. You know, it's a combination of law enforcement and cyber. And I recall uh, after graduating, I was on patrol looking forward to my first uh, computer crime. And the dispatcher sent me to my very first computer crime. I arrived and found out somebody had thrown a computer through a window. So the dispatcher uh, coded it as a computer crime just to give me a hard time. Uh, but it was then that I realized, you know, maybe working as a beat cop isn't going to expose me to the uh, sorts of computer crimes that I'm interested in. So I left uh, law enforcement and joined CIA as a technical operations officer. Uh, That was a great job, loved it, traveled the world engaging in cyber operations. Um, I'd probably still be there today uh, if it weren't for FBI's age limit. You know, they have this uh, age requirement that you have to enter a Quantico by age 37 because it's mandatory retirement at 57 and it's 20 years. Uh, so I uh, you know, left uh, the CIA and went to FBI and just did a you know, kind of two year rotation as a special agent at Washington field office, uh, and then went back to CIA as a vendor. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to today, I'm working for Shape Security and uh, um, absolutely loving it. My, my team, what we do is we pour over all the data that passes through Shape, which is uh, billions of uh, transactions every day. And uh, we look for interesting insights and uh, monetization schemes and attack tools, those sorts of things. So I'm I'm hoping we get a chance to talk about some of those insights uh, during today's interview. 
I love the story of your first computer crime uh, uh, case. That's a very great story. Um, So how have current events such as the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the presidential election, impacted the modern threat landscape specifically for applications? Well, you know, there are a lot of headlines out there that are very scary. You know, they talk about all the attacks, how they've gone up since COVID-19. Well, you know, we, we have we have petabytes of data. So we analyze that data to see did attacks go up due to COVID-19. Um, I mean, it just needs to, you know, uh, pass the common sense test. Like, why would attacks go up because there's a virus? Now, certainly all of these government programs that offer um, you know, some sort of uh, payment assistance, those are going to attract the fraudsters, absolutely. And you're going to see a huge uptick in those sorts of uh, types of fraud. But why would credential stuffing, you know, where somebody is just trying uh, millions or tens of millions of username password pairs against the login form, why would that go up during, you know, a pandemic? And it really depends on the vertical. I mean, you think about, um, you know, the incentive for somebody to launch a credential stuffing attack against, you know, an airline or a hotel uh, might be to gain access to the loyalty points kept inside. Well, I think most loyalty point balances are pretty low because we're not we're not flying around the country much. We're not uh, staying in hotels. So there's I think there's less of an incentive to launch launch attacks against those sorts of organizations. But then maybe uh, banking is a bit different. Maybe uh, they're, uh, you know, the more uh, aggressively targeting banks or government agencies, specifically uh, the government agencies involved in the handing out of payments. Uh, so we see large numbers uh, of attacks. So I, I'm not one that subscribes to the idea that COVID-19 is causing this large uptick in attacks. You have to be, I mean, that's a useless statement. We have to be more granular than that. Like what type of attack, what is the incentive for the attacker? Uh, What is the motive? What is the monetization scheme? And is this opportunity created because of COVID or is it lessened because of uh, COVID? And I see, you know, a whole uh, spectrum of uh, types of crimes that go up, some that actually go down. Um, so I think that a lot of the, the media spin on COVID-19 has been somewhat alarmist. Some of these actors are criminal actors, while others are nation states trying to gather intelligence. So how can people spot the difference and what measures should they take to protect against each? Well, they are different, but they overlap, right? There are uh, you know, state actors uh, who are criminals, uh, but the way I differentiate them is whether or not, it's really their, their objective. If they access an account and immediately monetize that access, they're going to know that the account holder is going to recognize that their, their money or their, their, you know, whatever is gone, whatever asset has been drained from the account. They're going to notice it immediately. Uh, they're going to, you know, uh, contact the organization. They're going to file a fraud complaint. Uh, and that, that person's then access to the account, the fraudster, uh, will, will be short-lived, but they'll, they'll get the money. Um, we've seen across some of our other customers, though, that, that somebody will take over an account, but they won't monetize. They won't drain the money. They'll just log in regularly uh, to look to see what assets are in there and look at other information. Maybe it's just strictly intelligence gathering. So imagine if uh, I were to gain access to somebody's bank account, I'd see uh, where they spend their money. I'd see where they shop. I probably would learn who their their cell phone carrier is based on the payment history. Uh, I'd learn, and I'd probably learn where they invest their money. There's a lot of intelligence to be gleaned from getting access to a bank account. It isn't just about the money or the the actual step for monetization. 
So I guess uh, one more um, note about, about the differences between criminal organizations and, and state actors is uh, think about a nation state that might you know, not be interested in the money, but that maybe they're more interested in doing damage uh, to the United States. Um, so they might gain access to hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, even millions of bank accounts and not monetize at all. They'll just you know, make sure that their the credentials still work. They'll continue to log in, maybe check the balance. But if they're hoping to do the most damage they can to, to the United States, then they will monetize all at once. Uh, rather than monetizing a little bit of time as they, as they, as they gained access, they're going to monetize all at once in an effort to try and cause a run on the banks. That would be truly uh, devastating to the United States, as you can imagine. So the other thing we noticed between the differences between you know criminal organizations and uh, state actors is typically state actors are are very well resourced. I mean, they have typically unlimited funds. Uh, they're very sophisticated. Whereas criminal organizations, you have the really um, bad criminals who aren't very good at what they're doing at all, and then you have them really uh, overlapping into the uh, level of sophistication we see with state actors. Now, with regard to how organizations can uh, identify those, I, it really is looking to see, do they monetize? What is their level of sophistication? You can't go by their attack infrastructure. You can't say, oh, this, this attack is originating uh, from Vietnam, uh, therefore, uh, you know, the Vietnamese are attacking. It's, you look, you can come from anywhere in the world you'd like. Um, and uh, it'd be completely anonymous. So the IP address, the autonomous system, the region, those should be given uh, very little to zero weight when it comes to uh, attack attribution. Very interesting. And you mentioned, uh, you know, some of the things that that are that that can be discovered, uh, you know, from, for example, a, a bank uh, statement or a bank account. Uh, but can you talk a little bit more about what's at risk when we discuss, you know, these threats? Other are there other kinds of information and resources that are on the line when credentials are stolen? Yeah, there, there certainly is a lot of information out there that uh, is attractive to fraudsters and to other criminals. And the mistake that I see most organizations make is they say, uh, A, the only thing in this account is some personally identifiable information, some PII. There's really nothing of any value. So it, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, we don't want ATO, of course, but it's not the end of the world if somebody takes over an account because there's really nothing in there to steal. The problem with that is PII is very important to fraudsters. It, uh, it allows them to then manipulate social engineering and make it much, much more effective. Uh, when, when I was in law enforcement, I investigated a case where um, this, this small group of, of criminals would call people and try to get them to change the location where they would make their mortgage payment. And I know that sounds crazy, but so if I called you and I said, hi, hi Connie, this is Dan with your lender. I'd like you to make all future payments to this PO box, okay? You'd probably say, um, I don't think so. But if instead I called you and said, hi, Connie, this is Dan with your lender. I see your, your current mortgage payments are 1876 and you've been, you've been late the last few months. Oh, I see three months ago you applied for a refi and it was denied. Uh, what do you, you want us to maybe reopen that application and, and, and consider you for a refi? Because we can probably get your payments down to 1200 a month at the new interest rate. Now, suddenly I have information that only your lender knows. And you, you, you know, you start giving me this misplaced credibility. I'm still, an, I'm a crook. I'm going to steal from you, but it makes it much more credible. 
And it just seems like you can trust the person because they have information that that otherwise they wouldn't have. Very, that's really fascinating. That's right. And the PII, I, I, I want to add that uh, even when there's maybe very little PII in the account uh, or maybe nothing else of value, uh, it isn't whether or not there is something of value in the account. What matters is whether a fraudster perceives that there's something of value in the account. That's the key. Um, truth doesn't matter, it's perception. Uh, and you think about it, how often do thieves break into open uh, to, to safes, right? They break into empty safes all the time because they perceive that there's going to be something of value inside. So um, enterprises need to recognize that it's a no-brainer that you know banks are going to be under attack and airlines, hotels, insurance companies, across virtually every vertical, if they have a public-facing web or mobile app, it's going to be under attack. Uh, but they, ha- they have to recognize that just because there isn't anything that they perceive uh, to be valuable in the account, it doesn't mean that attackers uh, won't, uh, won't perceive there to be value and will launch attacks. That's fascinating, yet scary. Um, according to an F5 report, cyber criminals have targeted individual applications to steal more than $40 billion in value. So what are some best practices that agencies can adopt to protect the applications and platforms that they use? And like you had mentioned, a lot of them are you know, dispensing money uh, in, in some form. So, I mean, th- those are also you know, very, very high risk, I would imagine. Yeah, I think understanding... Um couple of things. One, what are the monetization schemes? Like how could a criminal uh, benefit from compromising your organization? What information do you have that would be valuable? And you really have to think about that objectively. Um, and also you, you, you can't rely on what the you know, security operations or center are typically saying about attacks because you know, they're, they've gotten quite good at identifying, you know, maybe the top 10, 20, 100, maybe even the top 1,000 noisiest IP addresses that are engaged in an attack. But these attacks are coming from millions of IP addresses now. So they typically will miss the long tail of IP addresses where there's only maybe 10 or 15 transactions coming from them. So the, really the first step is, is gaining visibility into the problem. And this, you know, reminds me of the, the you know, the boiling a frog fable where, you know, it isn't that you have no attack, then suddenly you have lots of attacks and you can see that stark contrast. Typically what happens is, you know, years ago, these attacks started in low volume and then they, they would ramp up, they'd come and go and they would ramp up even more. Uh, then IT shops would have turnover. So over the course of years, attack traffic has gone from really uh, I'm not talking about those exploiting inherent vulnerabilities like, you know, credential stuffing or attacks against create account and forgot password. Um, these are the sorts of things that ramped up uh, slowly over the years. And typically over those years, there's been, you know, turnover inside, uh, you know, the IT and security staff. So often when we go in line at an organization and start applying our signals, the, the results are jaw dropping. I mean, and, and I, I don't use that term lightly. I mean, I, I, as I mentioned, I used to work for CIA and FBI as a B-cop. I saw a lot of fascinating things. But when I started to see the attacks against our uh, the Shape customers, when we would first go online, it was jaw-dropping. We're talking about 98, 99, 99.9% of all traffic hitting their origin was attack traffic. Um, and, and by the way, that isn't the exception anymore. We're r- routinely seeing attack traffic well over uh, 80%. Wow. Wow. So, so what can what can people do? I mean, are there types of security tools and technologies that you know agency leaders can leverage, you know, to help mitigate these threats? 
Yeah, there certainly are. And one thing I would caution everybody is to uh, really, you have to get over the not invented here, uh, you know, object objection. A lot of organizations, you know, they, they do battle with these attackers for months or even years before calling in shape. Uh, shape will go in line. And, you know, you could tell they did a pretty good job doing battle with them, causing them to become more sophisticated and to retool. Uh, but um, they just can't keep up. I mean, it's not something that you could do on your own. I mean, organizations don't, you know, build their own computers. Um, you know, th there are some services that should just be outsourced. Uh, and, uh, you know, Shape has been living and breathing, defending, you know, the Global 2000 from these sorts of attacks uh, for, for many years. We were the first into the space. So I don't think anybody is better at uh, mitigating these sorts of attacks. So the key is uh, you got to get over the not invented here, uh, ask for third party uh, support. And then the second thing is um, that there's a lot of a false belief that this can be done just by looking at the network uh, layer, maybe looking at uh, IP addresses, the ASNs. Uh, maybe user agent string, just looking at the HTTP traffic without collecting any signals from the client. Uh, that's a fool's errand, okay? Uh, um, again, we, we've gone in line with many organizations who have been trying those sorts of techniques for years. Uh, and then we go online and we say, yeah, you still have got, you still have 65% automated attack traffic. And they can't believe it. They simply cannot believe it, but then we show them the data and uh, there's no denying it. So uh, those are the, the two things is recognize you're gonna have to collect signals from the endpoint. Uh, you're not gonna do it at the network level and it's probably best for you to engage a third party rather than trying to take it on yourself. So Dan, what's one last piece of advice that you'd give to agencies who are looking to improve their application security and prevent attacks before they happen? I'd, I'd say um, visibility is the key. You have to get visibility. Uh, first. And I'm not sure that uh, everybody really is get, getting the visibility they need. They think maybe it's a 20-30% problem when in fact it's in the upper 90% of all traffic is attack traffic. And by, by the way, think about the implication. It isn't just about ATO, right? Think about the load that puts on backend systems. Think about the costs associated with some CDNs who are paying or charging uh, per transaction or fraud tools that are charging per transaction. Uh, one of our, our customers, they had no idea if their marketing dollars were being well spent because every time they did a television commercial or email blast to drive traffic to the website, um, it had no, no effect at all. And the reason it had no effect is it was impacting only the 1% uh, organic traffic. The rest of the traffic was attack traffic, bots. Um, and I guess another thing is don't rely on CAPTCHA. Um, CAPTCHA is uh, easy to defeat um, and uh, it, all it does is pr provide a lot of uh, friction uh, for your legitimate customers. That's true. Oh, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Fascinating, fascinating information. Um, scary sometimes too, but uh, but really, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I'm happy to. Thank you for the time. And there's one more piece of advice I leave all, with all your listeners, and that is never reuse your passwords. Use a password manager and use a strong password for every single account that you have online. Great advice especially in time for the holidays coming up. So thank you so much, Dan. I, I appreciate it. And thanks to our listeners of this episode of Industry Insights. Industry Insights is a production of Government Executive Media Group Studio 2G in collaboration with Kerasoft. This episode is brought to you today by Shape Security and F5 Company. If you like this episode, subscribe on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or govexec.com forward slash podcasts.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Industry Insights, brought to you by F5 in collaboration with Kerasoft and Government Executive Media Group's Studio 2G. As your applications evolve, make sure your agency is equipped with security tools that can keep up. Learn more about how F5 can help you secure your applications in an ever-changing world at www.f5.com federal.